0: This podcast contains disturbing accounts of intrafamily violence and trauma. If you or anyone you know are in need of support, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week by calling 1-800-799-SAFE or chatting with an advocate at www.thehotline.org. Again, That's 1-800-799-SAFE or www.thehotline.org. From the National Judicial Institute on Domestic Violence, this is Centering Children, a discussion with child psychology experts on helping children exposed to domestic violence heal and thrive. I'm your host, Aaron Polke. Today we're discussing fathers, specifically the issues and challenges facing family courts in cases that involve fathers who use domestic violence. Joining us are two expert psychologists, Katrina Scott, clinical psychologist, professor, and director of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children at Western University, and Peter Jaffe, psychologist, professor and the director emeritus of the center that Katrina now leads. Welcome to both of you.
1: Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here.
0: Great to be here, Aaron. So let's set our foundational question. We are talking about intervening with fathers who commit domestic violence. And Peter, can you tell us a little bit more about why we're focusing on fathers in this context?
2: Well, Aaron, I think we've all come to realize how children are affected by domestic violence. But we've really overlooked the whole issue of fathering and the role of parents and how this may impact uh, children's behavior in the in the long term. We're usually looking for ways to provide interventions for men. We usually focus on them as intimate partners. So we, when they're in criminal court, they often get referred to batter intervention programs but we really don't look at their role as fathers because we're focused more on the safety of the adult victim and looking at how to help him in future intimate relationships and hold him accountable for that behavior. So we've, for a long time, ignored the role of fathers and the kind of role models they are for children, especially in the context of a history of, uh, of domestic violence. Now, you might say, why fathers? Well, clearly fathers and mothers, need help we know that uh, domestic violence may involve male victims may involve female perpetrators there's men and women who abuse their children we're focused on fathers because research on domestic violence tells us that in the vast majority of cases up to 80 percent children are exposed to their fathers being abusive uh, to their mothers and we know fathers are also involved in the most extreme forms of violence kicking choking beating their partner. So we're looking at some pretty horrific things that children may be exposed to and and how they're impacted. We used to think somehow if parents separated, that was gonna be the solution. We'd keep the victims safe and we keep them apart, but it's it's not that simple. Um, Lots of couples uh, reconcile, or fathers may go on to other relationships and continue to be male role models. If the violence isn't properly addressed, so we need to recognize that fathers have an ongoing role with with children. Uh, so we simply can't rely on on the on the mother as a victim to protect the children without some sort of other interventions. We clearly need to be addressing uh, that aspect of counseling uh, men as fathers as well as men as intimate partners.
0: Can you dig a little bit more deeply from the? Uh, family court's perspective. Uh, what could a family court judge be doing differently when it comes to engaging fathers in cases that involve domestic violence?
1: Thanks, Aaron. I'm really, really happy to talk about this. I have spent um, a good part of my career really focusing on how we can do a better job or how we need to do a better job with supporting children and their safety by working with men as fathers in the context of domestic and family violence. So I am going to talk about dads, but just before I do, I I want to take a little bit of a step back and talk about the fact that, you know, the the role that family courts can have in improving outcomes for families, and really, especially for children living with domestic violence. Um, But in order for the court to play that role, I, I think there's some things that we need to start doing differently. And at the real start of this difference is a shift in perspective that recognizes and responds to domestic violence. So in my experience, we we currently have a system that's set up to do everything it can to get separating partners to be friendly and collaborative. Um, These expectations come into play very early on and, you know, they're repeated often through the systems. And in general, this makes sense. We know that most often children benefit from having time with both parents and having both parents involved in planning for their future. The problem is that these same friendly parents, friendly parenting expectations They play out very differently in a situation of domestic violence. And although the court can take different actions, the threshold for recognizing domestic violence and moving away from friendly parenting expectations is is really very high.
0: What's an example of a situation where friendly parenting expectations might need to be adjusted?
1: So let's consider what I would say is a fairly typical domestic violence situation. So prior to the separation, Dad made a lot more money than mom did in her part-time job, and she had most of the responsibility for the children. He had control of the family family finances and the family decisions. He never really liked her family and friends, and as a result, she's quite isolated. Over time in their relationship, conflicts between them escalated, overspending, activities, child-rearing issues. And in these conflicts, he inevitably wins because when he doesn't, she pays through increased monitoring, scrutiny of our activities and spending, more isolation from others, verbal abuse and disparagement, and in the months before the separation by being physically assaulted, severely enough that she became terrified of making him angry. She didn't call the police. She didn't want him to lose his job and worried that calling the police would make the situation even more dangerous.
0: Wow, that's a serious situation. What about their kids?
1: So if we think about the kids in this situation who are now in their early teens, um, they at this point prefer it when their dad isn't at home. So even before the assault, they experience their dad as someone who's angry most of the time, has a hair trigger, and is not really interested in who they are and what they're doing. And now they want nothing to do with him and are starting to be vocal about that. Mom's worried that he will assault them as, a, as well.
0: Well, all of this must have taken a toll on the mom, right?
1: So although for years mom has blamed herself the physical abuse and her children's clearly articulated view of their dad was a reality check to what was happening. She packed up the kids and left and he was super angry about it. He didn't want to really leave the, he didn't want the relationship to end. He's sure she can't make it on her own and that she'll need money if nothing else. So she he makes sure that she can't access family finances. He calls around to all the family and friends to explain she's going through bad menopause, has gone a bit crazy and needs to be reminded of her responsibilities to her family. He starts showing up everywhere she is and she gets a restraining order.
0: Okay, restraining order. So now the courts are
1: involved. So now they appear in family court. She turns to the family court with hope that the court can help protect her and her children from ongoing abuse and that she'll be less afraid. And that through the court, there can be a separation of assets and funds so that she has a foundation to build on. She thinks that the children should continue to have a relationship with their father, but the children don't want to be forced to go see him. It doesn't turn out that way, though. Instead of having the domestic violence recognized and responded to, she's deemed as being not friendly by raising unproven allegations of domestic violence. Well,
0: how do they make that determination?
1: There are question raised, questions raised about whether or not she's alienating the children from their father. She's advised to do exchanges herself and not to ask for supervised exchange because she'll look more cooperative that way, despite the fact that it terrifies her.
0: So she's strategizing against her own wishes?
1: Um, Her ongoing fear is perceived as being unreasonable, and her support of her children's wishes to not have as much time with their father is seen as unfriendly.
0: I see. Peter, from the court's perspective, why do you think examples like this happen?
2: I, I think it's uh i I think the as you describe the case, I'm just thinking about all the things that might be going on either in a judge's mind or somebody who's doing a parenting evaluation how to how to make sense of what's happening and trying to sort through whether this is uh you know whether to what extent the violence has happened and and has had an impact on the mother and the kids or to what extent is she? talking about things and exaggerating them. So a key issue is going to be the evidence before the judge and what kind of finding the judge can make and, and, and what kind of evaluation a judge could benefit from.
1: That still doesn't get us out of that friendly parenting route, though, does it? <laughs> this is where that bar becomes really, really high for making that shift from, you know, we just want everybody to get along to recognizing that there needs to be things put in place to make sure that safety is accounted for, and that abuse is recognized. And, you know, maybe we can do both. Um, But being able to move into a more investigative, um, supportive uh, role around domestic violence, um, even while you sort out the complexity, might be very important.
2: Well, just to build on that, Katrina, I, I, I think, you know, the reality is everybody working in family court wants parents to get along, wants parents to recognize they're separating as intimate partners, but they're parents forever and want to make sure kids have lots of time with, uh, with each parent. However, uh, judges also recognize more and more through their, through state legislation that when domestic violence is a factor, it requires very different remedies. So it's, a uh, it, there's a very different pathway and very different approaches in terms of assessing the violence and the impact of the violence and, and looking at uh, very, very much uh, differential intervention and in, in court orders to promote safety and accountability.
1: Well, and Peter, often I think that comes in time as well. So if we imagine in this case, you know, in terms of what he's done, at the beginning uh, when he started family court process, he thought, you know, he's going to get her back like back into the relationship. So he figured that if he delayed settling financially long enough, she'll really have no choice. He delays. And as it sinks in that he's, that she's really left, he's he's super angry and then starts to get the court to work for him. So he decides to fight for equal parenting time and decision-making and starts to put forward all sorts of motions to try to bury her in that court process. And I know from discussions with various people that, that often Um, you can, it's, it's even through that ongoing use of the court to try to get her to do something that you can see that pattern of, of, of abuse and coercion play out.
2: Procedural abuse is real and that's a danger. And that's certainly one thing we want judges to be vigilant for is, you know, separating the cases with properly need to be before the court in the cases where the court process has become an extension of a coercive control in the marriage and it's really litigation abuse. So that's obviously a key aspect of part of judge's decision-making and managing cases. Katrina, what else is at play?
1: Well, let's go back to dad for a second because um, I think that lots of times the focus is on, okay, let's, let's really make sure we get a good assessment from of her side, whether or not she's believable, whether or not the domestic violence is believable. I think that when we shift to looking at dads and looking at fathers and looking at domestic violence, we can also really do a good assessment of what, of what he's doing. So is, is what he is doing about the kid's best interests? Is it about continued course of control? Is he responding to what the court has suggested in ways that suggests that he is trying to be cooperative and complying? Or is he continuing to um, feel like he's a victim, deny any wrongdoing? And going back to those questions that you asked, is he actually being accountable and changing his behavior? And those kinds of questions, I think, are really important as much as important as sorting out what the what she's saying. We have to really look at what he's saying and doing and whether or not it, it, it fits with the situation.
0: But I'm wondering, Peter, from your point of view, just about the children's safety itself. Um, Katrina gave an example that spoke a lot about the father's conduct in examples um, of the way that the father asserted power and control in the context of that relationship. And how does the father's history with domestic violence uh, not only impact the the mother in this example, but also the safety of the children?
2: I think Aaron, it's uh, a good question, and I think the case example really illustrates the ongoing nature of domestic violence and the harm for children, and also the harm for the uh, for the mother in this in this situation. I think courts are often used to thinking about what happened at a certain day and time, or With family court and domestic violence situations, we're looking at the ongoing impact of this behavior over time. And we now know that certainly the most judges recognize that exposure to domestic violence is harmful, that children are going to be at risk uh, for physical and emotional harm. There may be other forms of abuse taking place as well. Children may end up with a number of problems related to their own uh, mental health, potentially uh, having post-traumatic stress disorder themselves from what they've been exposed to. And these difficulties may continue uh, throughout their lifespan as they uh, move to adolescence and early adult years. So we're certainly worried about ongoing exposure and how children could be harmed. And we're also worried about escalating risk because obviously at the extreme, we're always worried about preventing domestic homicides that unfortunately also include child homicides. We also have to recognize that there's ongoing harm uh, to the child through the impact on the child's mother. So it's not just the direct impact, it's the indirect impact on the mother's parenting. The father may target the mother's parenting, uh, attacking her sense of competency as a mother, blaming her when when children misbehave, if they have emotional behavior problems related to living with the violence, uh, trying to attempt trying to control the amount of attention she gives to him compared to the children, trying to undermine the children's relationship with her. And throughout this period, minimizing and denying the abuse and the harm that it's that it's creating and questioning mother's credibility about why she seems to be making a big deal about nothing when she's talking about this history of, of violence. The, the one good piece of news, uh, both from the research and, and our clinical experience, is that many men actually do want to change, that many men who commit domestic violence may have grown up in homes with violence, uh, may reflect on the legacy their father has left for them and want to create a different kind of legacy for their own children. So I do think courts can be very effective to really engage men on thinking about these things and get them to think about what it really means to be a father not just uh, a breadwinner or good enough or adequate, but how they can be an effective father in these circumstances and help children overcome the past. Uh, we know there's a number of programs that are developing that Katrina's going to talk about, but clearly what we're now know is those programs have to deal with abusers as fathers, not just as intimate partners. Uh, and they have to recognize uh, the impact of the violence on the children and not just physical violence, but also course of control, the daily acts of uh, psychological, economic abuse, the things that are said and done, that are attempts to control the mother and, and the children, the things that are part of an overriding pattern that also affects the children. And these are critical things for intervention uh, because batter intervention programs don't really deal with this aspect of the behavior, how it impacts men as, as fathers. So it's critical to really work with men and find a way to get through the denial minimization uh, that's gone on for years. So again, the key is focus on change, not just as an intimate partner, but as a father. And, and uh, I I think Katrina has done a lot of very innovative work in developing programs and seeing what's happening around the world. And, Uh, I think it's really important to be able to share some of those.
0: Well, Katrina, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that innovative work? I'm glad that we're shifting to some of the good news that fathers want to change. So what interventions are available out there um, that courts can embrace to uh, facilitate that change?
1: Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to talk about that. You know, I want to reiterate what Peter said about about dads and change we think about the dad in this example, one of the things that we can imagine is that, you know, there's a good chance that he feels quite estranged from his family, he probably wants or many men want a closer relationship with their kids. And, um, you know, even though he's going about it in all of the wrong ways, and he's actually creating more distance and more harm in his behaviors. You know, it's often the case that nobody's kind of explained that to him sat him down and and said, well, you know, what you're doing here, it may be that you want to be able to have a closer relationship with your kids, you may want to have, um, you know, be more settled in terms of your, of, of your relationship. And, and you need to talk about how your actions are actually contributing to make it making it worse and ongoing harm rather than building the kind of relationship you want to be as a father.
0: What are the key principles? What are the sort of the top line points that folks who might want to embrace some of the suggestions that uh, Katrina just uh, articulated w- that they might want to take into consideration?
2: Well, Aaron, I, I think the starting point always, and I probably don't have to say this to family court judges, but it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. There's lots of great programs, but it still requires some tailoring to make sure you have the right program uh, for the right individual and, and family system. Um, I think it's it's critical to recognize uh, the kind of risk that the uh, perpetrator of domestic violence is is presenting, um, uh, the the likelihood of reoffending, the potential dangerousness. That o- obviously, the risk has to be considered. There also has to be recognition of the the needs that are present because it's it's often more than just domestic violence. There may be issues, for example, the Katrina referred to, maybe other issues around mental health or addictions. There may be multiple issues. Uh, employment, housing, there, there may be really important issues that have to be addressed aside from the domestic violence itself. Uh, you also have to recognize the individual uh, perpetrator's uh, style, motivation. What are the things that are going to be effective in uh, engaging him and keeping him engaged? And what are the, some of the strengths and skills that he has that you can build on uh, in terms of his response to treatment? So I think those are critical. What's also critical is that there has to be ongoing collaboration with other community partners. Uh, Programs for men cannot work in isolation. They have to be working with uh, programs for victims, uh, programs for survivors, programs for children living with domestic violence. Uh, Often there's multiple agencies involved, multiple systems that have to work together. It takes a whole village uh, to work. With families where there's domestic violence, to not only provide treatment for the perpetrator but also for the, the victim and the and the children. Um, systems have to work together because we're often dealing with cases where there's involvement with the criminal court, the family courts also involved potentially. other child protection hearings, so clearly the, the different systems have to be working together, and they can't be working in separate silos. So there has to be an awareness of not only the treatment program, but the response to the treatment and some sort of ongoing monitoring and review. And the ultimate question, this is a question I get get asked by judges quite a bit, is how can you tell when someone has changed? It's obviously there's situations where someone's in denial. They continue to stalk and harass their partner after separation. There's new offenses. Obviously, that person is obviously not changing. But how do judges know when someone says to them, well, Your Honor, I've seen the light. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a different person today. How do you know that's the case? Well, the key questions I think judges have to ask is first question, somebody making a full disclosure about the history of the abuse. Are they acknowledging what's actually taken place? Do they acknowledge that this is not acceptable behavior? In fact, there has to be alternatives uh, to this, to this conduct. They recognize that it's their choice to behave in this way and that they can't uh, blame the victim or say that she knows what buttons to push, that he has to take responsibility? Does he demonstrate any kind of empathy for the victim and the children? Does he recognize not only what he's done, but the impact of his behavior, how he has terrorized them and impacted their lives? Is he developing alternative behaviors? And is he really taking full accountability and, and making amends Uh, to recognize that he's going to have to move forward and stop blaming others for this situation. So again, I think those are some of the key questions that judges have to ask because judges are often at this turning point, especially in cases that we're involved in where where judges may be concerned and there's supervised uh, visits, supervised parenting time, and the judges want to know, well, is it safe to, move to unsupervised parenting time and overnights well before you can make those before you can have that transition you have to be able to answer those questions about change and recognition of the uh, the conduct in the past that has terrorized others
0: what are the big key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with
1: sure so i think for me the big takeaways are you know, how important family court is um, when they can recognize and respond to domestic violence. You know, family courts play a really, really crucial role in preventing future harm. Um, I think that part of that is then recognizing um, the abuser, recognizing the person who's driving the harm in the system and providing supports and motivation and push towards making change. I think Ultimately, change um, and accountability on the part of domestic violence perpetrators has to become a cornerstone consideration in promoting safety of survivors and children in family courts. Um, and for judges, I think um, I, I recognize that I've talked about a few programs. Um, Peter's talked about the need to think about multiple different needs and, and trying to find the resources that are appropriate for those families and I appreciate that sometimes that's that's tough. Sometimes um, resources that you need are not available. So I guess the my last word is that, again, the family court has a role in referring to programs that are available, and if not, asking why and encouraging community services to develop these really critical programs and services to support ultimately children.
0: That's very helpful. And uh, Katrina, I want to thank you for joining us today on Centering Children.
1: Glad to be here today, Aaron.
0: And Peter, thank you so much for joining us us again on this podcast.
2: My pleasure, Aaron. Such an important topic. Centering Children
0: is presented by the National Judicial Institute on Domestic Violence, a partnership of Futures Without Violence and the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges with the support of the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. Special thanks to Jennifer Arsenian and Breanne Smith for co-producing this program. Until next time, I'm Aaron Polkhead.